Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to discuss the main trends that have shaped the media industry in 2022. It's been a busy year, marked by social media chaos, a war in Ukraine, and with both of those, upended business models and burnt out audiences. We'll be chatting to Peter Houston, part of the Media Voices team that has authored the recent Media Moments Report 2022 with all the highlights of the year. With Peter, we'll be discussing four topics that are interlinked in interesting ways. Advertising, subscriptions, trust and newsletters. Whilst ad revenue has made a bounce back from the Covid crash, subscriptions look to take a hit with the cost of living crisis. Both forms of revenue will live and die by the news publisher's ability to win the trust of readers, and newsletters continue to stand the test of time thanks to their newfound ad potential, being part of the subscription bundle, and providing a way to cut through the noise on social media. Coming up is what you need to know as we near the end of 2022 and head into 2023. Don't go anywhere. Peter, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Hey, Jacob, how you doing? It's good to be here. Yeah, it's nice to be on the other side of an interview for a change. It's really cool. <laughs> Is it weird? A little bit, yeah. It's uh, well, we'll see how it goes, but I probably want to jump in and ask myself questions at some point. <laughs> we'll see how we get on. I understand a little known fact about you, Peter, is uh, many moons ago, you were the lead singer in a punk cover band. Tell us more. I was. I was the, uh, I was a, we were a pub band. Uh, I used to live in Hong Kong through the late 80s up till about 97 when the Chinese threw us out. Um, and I was this singer in a band called Electric Soup. Uh, we played in the, the pubs in, in Hong Kong and it was the best fun probably of my life, to be honest. We didn't get paid very much. It's a bit like working in media these days. Uh, we used to get paid. <laughs> we got paid in beer. Paid in exposure, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exposure. Uh, but it was fun. We did a lot of kind of 80s punk covers and uh, we had a blast. It was brilliant. Nice. What's your vocal range like? Uh, these days, not what it used to be, but I was probably more of a shouter than a crooner, to be honest. Well, that's the, the style of punk, of course. My my sort of party trick was to get up on a bar stool and try and balance on the bar stool while I was singing, which is always good for a while. Never fell off. Never fell off. You said you were a cover band. What what songs did you cover? Oh, we used to do all sorts. We used to do Clash covers. Uh, we did a one of my favourites was a Damned song, which allegedly the first punk single was New Rose. We used to do that. Um, we <laughs> later we did uh, we covered Nirvana's "Smells Like Teen Spirit" and the, the highlight of that was my mother-in-law was visiting once and she ended up on the stage singing along with us. Well into our sixties by that point, that was a that was a highlight. You could tell that we didn't really take ourselves too seriously. I'm getting that impression. I'm getting that impression. Peter, as we approach the end of the year, it's it's always useful to take stock of how much has happened in the last 12 months in the media industry. So much happens so quickly, so rapidly. And of course, um, you and the Media Voices team have come out with this brilliant Media Moments uh, 2022 report, which very much does take stock of how much has happened. Uh, we're going to dig into uh, some of those red threads, takeaways and key trends that we've seen. Appropriately, let's start then with ad revenue, um, which mm. we saw when the pandemic happened. We had this sort of crash around ad revenue. The year following that, we saw this big bounce back. 2022, a return to normal, perhaps? 
I think it was more than a return to normal. I think because there was this pent up demand and there was people trying to kickstart the businesses. I think it was probably bigger than normal. It's certainly in, in terms of comparative growth. Um, those numbers look really, really skewed. You know, IAB report uh, that came out was you know, talked about exponential growth and I think it was the highest growth since 2006 um, at the beginning of the year. <laughs> that that kind of spot. oh my God, advertising's not dead. We did a podcast ages ago, we did it with Flume, uh, one of our conversations episodes, and we actually asked the question, is advertising more hassle than it's worth? And Flume, you know, as a sales training company, Flume said absolutely not, And but doing it the old way it is, you know, in terms of selling space. People got that sense of, oh, advertising back. Uh, and maybe that was a little bit of sort of false picture based on certainly post-first wave growth. Advertising might be back, but we're seeing a lot of different growth opportunities and different areas to explore within the uh, advertising space. So I think that's the central thread here, right? I mean, if you look at the beginning of the year compared to the end of the year, you know, that first couple of months... Uh, January, February, last quarter of 2021, trying to remember what year we're in. Um, everyone was really, really buzzing and upbeat. And then, of course, Russia went into Ukraine and all bets were off, I think. So through the rest of the year, I think people were questioning what was coming, and I think they still are. But it's really interesting. Esther talks a lot about this. It's not a normal recession because, you know, I just saw numbers from Group M that for the whole year were predicting a 5.9% growth. That's not that's not double-digit growth or beyond, but it's still growth. So in a recession, if that's the right word, uh, with the inflation that we've got and the cost of living pressures that we've got, to still get 5.9% growth, that's still interesting um and i think it's exactly what you said people are doing different things big tech's taking an absolute kicking mm -hmm. um which none of us are particularly sad about uh i think that's opened up some opportunities for small digital publishers and for for some uh more traditional legacy publishers because people are being a little bit more intentional about where they're putting the ads it's too easy to buy big tech advertising right mm. but the other side of that peter kafka wrote a piece about this uh, it's really easy to cancel it as well whereas i think when people are thinking harder about where they're spending money maybe the smaller niche publishers are going to benefit from that i hope they will i really do but you you make the very good point in the report that publishers are rethinking really their ads a lot now reducing their ad count in favor of user experience right and this is to do with the um the third party cookies which has got this second uh, delay of course now pushing it to july 2024 publishers like the telegraph are showing that one first party data ad is five times as valuable as 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 a competing ad across the website i think you know talked about threads running through all these things i think one of the threads is value Mm. Um, and the thing with advertising, uh, without bagging on the, the regional press, you go to any of the sort of regional press websites and it's like whack-a-mole and you can't see the content because of the advertising. And I get it. 
you know, people need to to make the revenue that, to pay for the content. We know the story, but as soon as you start degrading the user experience like that, um, you're going to lose people. Your traffic's going to disappear, or it's just going to be crap traffic. That conversation came out of the Press Gazette new, um, Media Summit, where um, they were talking about reducing ad counts to improve the user experience. One because they want that first-party data, so they need a proper relationship with the users. But actually, it's just about attention. If there's too many ads on a page, what do you look at? So if you reduce the ad count, you're going to get better response rates and you're going to keep your advertisers. So I think that idea of value, and that's true of uh, subscriptions, it's true in newsletters, it's true in the trust debate. The idea of delivering value to the readers or the viewers, or the visitors, or whatever whatever label you put on the audience. That's a really, really big deal. And that's a great thing, I think, for media in general. I think that's a great thing. I agree with you. This, this whack-a-mole um, framework that we see is, is not particularly new. We've seen this for many, yeah. many years now. But it's the fact that this has now risen to the front of um, news publishers' minds to think there's, there's a business imperative, one, but there's also you know a user imperative. It's, it's the two in tandem which is forcing the issue. Yeah, definitely. There's competing motivations there in the sense that if you pack the page with advertising, you're so normally going to make more money. But long term, if you pack the page with advertising, you're going to lose readers. So there's got to be a balance there. Mm. It definitely has to be a balance. And I think, I hope that's what we're seeing develop. And I think the death imminently or otherwise of third-party cookies is going to help push that forward mm. you know people need those real relationships uh, they need the audience to trust them they need the audience to build a habit and come back and see them regularly and they're not going to do that if all they end up doing is fighting against the ads let's move on to subscriptions firmly touted as a reliable alternative to collapsing ad revenue in the early days of the pandemic Whilst ads are now making a bounce back, subscriptions could be set for a downfall. Readers will have tighter purse strings as we go through this harsh financial winter. Subscription cancellations have risen by a third in the last quarter compared to Q1 of 2021, and that's according to Inma's subscription benchmarking service. If news publishers are to hang on to new subscribers next year, they must prove to be good value for money. I saw a bank up the other day, which was actually offering to go through and check people's subscriptions and cancel the ones that they weren't using now when you start automating that process you know i I've, i can't get that image of that meerkat out my head that's, <laughs> that's automating i could just see those little bank of meerkats canceling subscriptions every one of these things is an easy reminder is there's no silver bullet you know, ultimately, it's always going to come back to keeping people happy. And you keep people happy by giving them things that they need or want. 100%. Uh, and subscriptions is right at the center of that. You know, we all did it. We, we, we were locked down. We signed up for all sorts of stuff to keep ourselves amused or informed. Um, and then it gets to the other side when normal life, whatever that happens to be, returns. And we all think, why am I spending 10 quid a month on this? What was I thinking? <laughs> Um, I think what's interesting, uh, you know, and the, the the war in Ukraine underlined this. I think it was the Times signed up record numbers of subscribers. It was 1,000 people a day. 
in the first two weeks of the war. Yeah, and I think that sort of makes the point that you know, there's some information that is that people consider necessary to stay informed of what's going on in this mad world that we live in. But I'd love to see some of the numbers on the sort of hobby titles that people think, oh, I want to be a violin player. I want to be a, a I want to sew. I want to do um, press flowers or whatever it was. All really valid topics during a time when you've got nothing else to do. But then when life takes over, um, you know, do you still want to, you still have time to press flowers. I don't know. Yeah. So I think the subscription thing is really, really coming down to value. People are going to choose two or three subscriptions uh, and you're competing with Netflix and you're competing with Disney Plus. And, and it's just, you know, it's that's a tough market. Yeah. No, in- increasingly people are going to pay and keep paying for news they can trust. And I think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day, this shift towards trust, this shift towards quality. This is the thing that I keep hearing every time I you know, speak to someone about subscriptions, it's about reader quality and how well they know their readers. Uh, and there's some wonderful examples of this. You speak about in the report, the sports and culture publisher Defector, sort of 95% of their revenue as a, as a two-year-old startup is coming from subscriptions. But, you know, there's a, there's a reverse side of that, which is the dependence on one revenue stream, which is the other thing we've spoken about, you know, diversifying revenue across the board, not just being wholly reliable on one form of revenue. Well, we argue for that all the time. You know, we have we've got this little joke um, aphorism that we say it's got to be a mix of six, mix of six. Yeah, which is based on something that uh, David Carey, who was the president of Hearst, said about ten years ago. But we're still trotting it out. Uh, it's that idea that as a publisher, you know, whether it's five, whether it's six, whether it's seven, it doesn't matter. If you're what I've just written a piece that says if you're a one-trick pony these days then you might struggle uh, unless you really happen to be the absolute best one trick pony in your particular niche mm. um so but we would always argue for that mix of revenue which is why i think when you saw uh netflix and disney plus introducing um, an ad tier um, that is really, really interesting, I think, because that's taken us back to the way things used to be. And that's not, oh, I'm an old guy uh, compared to all you, you people. That's the way it used to be. And that was a good thing because it meant that people didn't get absolutely slaughtered when one part of the mar- market disappeared. I um, spoke to James Hughes uh, about this at FIP and he described it as five even fifths, um, 20% of your business in five different buckets. Um, so I think that's definitely you know a lesson for the future. I think arguably my favourite case study this year is is the one around Quartz tearing down its paywall um, in favour of this high concentration on newsletters. This is something we turned our attention to. I know you have as well. Um, but that pivot to the registration wall um, is is really, really significant, I think. Yeah, I think it just gives them options. You know, still got the membership tier. Um, I I have that. I I'm a Quartz member. We we've been fans of Quartz for a long time. They've clearly struggled. You know, they've gone through the the acquisition and then a the management buyout, and uh, now they've they've kind of I hate the word pivoted, but they've kind of pivoted to uh, that mix of ad sales and membership. Because the the figures they were saying to me is that seventy five percent of their memberships come from newsletters. Like three quarters of people are paying because of what they're they're getting a free email and then that's prompting them to pay up for a premium one so what's the point in limiting the access to the website via a paywall 
that's smart thinking. I think one of the problems that media faces or media people face is this is the way we've always done it, so this is the way we'll always do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that we've looked at courts so closely over the last four or five years or whatever is the fact that they're not like that. They will change things up. Uh, and that's a really big deal in this market because you can't take it in for granted. Because they, they've changed a number of times. This is like a return to what they were doing in the first place in 2012 when they first launched, you know, free at the point of access um, to to hopefully, you know, widen the funnel as much as possible. Yeah, it is, but they've evolved it because those newsletters, um, I, they do this one thing. I can't remember if they still call it Obsession, but it's like this weekly deep dive into one topic, and I love it. Mm. You know, I don't read every single one of them, but some of them I read and I think, oh, my God, I didn't know that. And then I then I bore people rigid by talking about it for the next week until the next one turns up. But I think it's it's an amazing lesson in finding your niche, creating demand, and then really owning that, creating an appeal. Because you you can you can the trap there is to be on too much on one side or the other. You know, being too niche or you know not niche enough. Well, they still get talked about as uh, I can't remember who coined the phrase, but the mushy middle. Yeah, they still get kind of defined as that. But you know, and and yeah, they're not super niche. But for me, they're actually perfectly mushy. You know, they're exactly what I want. Fears over subscription saturation have not yet been realised. When we spoke to Quartz earlier this year, the editor-in-chief, Zach Seward, told me there was plenty of growth left beyond their 25,000 premium newsletter subscribers. What will be essential for any news publication hoping to see growth in any premium product will be delivering relevance and also winning over sceptical audiences. Trust remains a big issue. The last digital news report showed that 34% of people trust the news in the UK. Trust saw a brief corona bump in 2021 when audiences flew towards quality, but otherwise the picture has been one of continual decline ever since 2016, sparked by the polarising Brexit referendum. News avoidance also remains in freefall. Nearly half of people in the UK selectively avoid the news now due to the negative emotions it brings. That's double what it was in 2017. It's a core problem the news industry has to solve. You know, the fact that people needed that information and trust went up. You know, you look at the kind of work that the FT did around their data journalism in that period, uh, which I believe was almost exclusively free to access. And people really, really went for that. Mm. And trust went up. So the idea that it's gone down again, is that because we've stopped delivering necessary information? Possibly. Or is it because we've gone back to clickbait, super sensational headlines? You know, there was a study done, I can't remember the number, but it was a stupid number, a stupid percentage of headlines that were judged to be sensational. I have the statistics to hand if you'd like to hear them. Nice. See, I told you I'm not great with numbers. Headlines expressing anger up 104% uh, since 2000. Fear 150%. Sadness 54%. And that was, I'm going to get this acronym wrong. PLOS1, perhaps. I don't know if you say it or say the letters, but I think that stands, you know, it's a very clear picture of how. It's a public library, people in the States. Um, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. We're, you know, you can't manipulate people and then expect them to trust you once they figure out they've been manipulated. And that's exactly what clickbait is. Clickbait is about manipulating people. Clickbait's a narrow term in some ways, but it's more than that. Like you said, it's 
oh, we're highly emotive headlines that are going to cause anger or sadness or whatever. And I'm not saying that people just want the facts, but they don't want to have to fight through all that to get to the facts. That's the point. You articulated this so well in the uh, the report. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you said something along the lines of the outrage engine in pursuit of short-term goals is having a long-term harm on audiences and the media. You know, And I think that really sums up the, the state of play right now. I think the idea of the outrage engine is very, very real. I'm, you know, we still use Twitter. We will probably until it falls over. And I suppose we're all guilty of it. I've written pieces that's like, you know, five strategies to change your business and whatever. We're all kind of guilty of it. It's not such a big deal when you're talking about SEO strategies, but when you're talking about health policy or strikes or or whatever, it's a big deal. And I think that's that polarization that that causes is something that we, as a society, we really, really need to look at. But as an industry, we need to take some responsibility for. Yeah, and and it's worth pointing out that trust is complex. And I think when I spoke to the Reuters Institute about this, the media is very much affected by association when it reports on political institutions and big tech itself when people don't trust those institutions and those platforms with all the disruption we've seen on twitter this year you know by association we can be affected by you know absolutely that, that. the reverse is kind of also true which is that you know trust can be a reason why people um why brands sorry can be successful if they are really you know tuned into their readers and there's a there's a great case study that you talk about uh with 1440 the u.s startup with uh, 2 million newsletter subscribers in the space of four years, politically neutral, you know, five minute reads, open rates over 50%, so high concentration on newsletters, and an eight figure annual income to boot. So pretty good. I thought the origin story of 1440 was really interesting. It actually started as a family newsletter. And when the guy started it up, he deliberately took that kind of neutral path because he didn't want to get into a situation where he was fighting with his I don't know, his mad uncles or, or whatever about um, the position that, that they were taking. And and he, they've kept that going. I can't remember the guy's name, which is, again, my failing. But he talks about that idea that, that they're fallible, they're humans, they could, they're always, they're never going to get it 100% right. But they always try and tread that kind of center path. And, you know, one of the things that I would say, I'm banging on about gammonistas or whatever, there's some nut jobs on the left as well as on the right. It's not an ex- it's not exclusively a, a, a right-wing clickbait and outrage. is not exclusively a right-wing phenomenon. But I think that brings us to newsletters quite nicely. As a, as a, you know, I love newsletters for the fact that they're, you know, finite, completable, manageable, and also self-initiated. You know why you're re- receiving it. And I think this is, as one of the oldest digital mediums, why it st- stood the test of time, which is, you know, it's, it's so on... The, the users, um, you know, behest to to consume it, really. It's not just coming at them. It's not fired at them. They know what they're signing up for. And a real counter, I would say, to this news avoidance that we're seeing. Yeah, definitely. I think the growth in newsletters in some ways was absolutely predictable. And in other ways, I'm looking at it going, well, wow, <laughs> wish I wish I'd thought of that one. I, I think you're right. It's the opt-in idea of it. It's, although, although, the newsletter is a broadcast that feels like it's one-to-one the best newsletters you feel like they're talking directly to you one of the examples we used is a guardian and i'm sure they haven't abandoned 
traditional newsletter metrics like click-throughs and open rates or whatever, but they're very much more looking at that long-term relationship with people, you know, as people staying subscribed and, and they're engaging with the content. We had Mark Stenberg on talking about newsletters and Mark said this, he saw this year as kind of normalization for newsletters where it really became part of the portfolio. And I think when you look at what some of the things that people like The Guardian are doing where the newsletter is a self-contained thing, you don't have to click off to their website. You can read it right there and then. I think that's a, a really interesting development. The world of newsletters has been wrought with disruption too. Changes to Apple's mail privacy protection has all but killed open rate metrics. But the silver lining is that news publishers now must look to other ways to measure engagement like surveys, something The Guardian and The Financial Times are doing really well. Facebook has shut down its Substack rival product Bulletin this year, and Twitter has only this week, controversially, closed down its newsletter product Review, giving writers mere days to export their email list. Speaking of Substack, the mill in Manchester is the standout example of using the platform to offer a welcome alternative to the fairly homogenous local news sector. It's now breaking even thanks to running its news operation there. There's an interesting comparison here in the US with Rocker News, publishing on the newsletter competitor Beehive with some 200,000 newsletter subscribers, all signing up for a daily dose of non-partisan news. One growth strategy has seen them pledge $1 to charity for every new subscriber. The result was that 16,000 people signed up. All of this goes to show the versatility of newsletters. That feeds right back to the trust issue and the news avoidance issue is that idea of people feeling overwhelmed. Um, and taking control of that or allowing consumers to take control of it is a really good thing. I saw Chris had a piece in the newsletter yesterday about pink news, allowing people to to switch off certain types of news or whatever. And I think that's, that's a really interesting experiment. You know, what? how are people going to react to that? And, well, you know, will it become clear that they're avoiding stuff that they probably shouldn't be avoiding or... Is that up to us to make that decision? Or It's really interesting. It'll be interesting if that data was fed back to the organization so they could know the hot button topics or the yeah. subjects or themes or whatever it is that's causing people to avoid specifically so it's grounded in some kind of data because much of it right now is qualitative, isn't it? People saying, right, I dislike the news because it's yeah, overwhelming, absolutely. it's distressing, it's making me you know, have bad thoughts. But actually grounding that in data would be... Um, very, very interesting if that's possible. I'll have to just chat to them about that, Peter. Yeah, I think I know it's a great story, to be honest. And, and no doubt we'll pick it up and, re, and put it in the newsletter when you do it. <laughs> it's a race. <laughs> no, you have to do it first. That's the only way we'll put it in the newsletter. Okay, okay. I'll, I'll make a point. I've got some uh, friends at the Pink News, so I'll, I'll get on the case. But I think it speaks to the power of newsletters for a variety of functions. You know, we've seen it as a first party data gathering tool that people like the FT and they're also doing some fascinating work around surveys at the end of their yeah. um, newsletters as well as as a tool for audience engagement as well so knowing what people like and uh, observing informing their editorial cycle in a manageable way for them I think what's interesting about that FT case study is it's not a one one and done situation 100 percent. as publishers certainly in the bad old days we used to do a survey once a year and that was that that informed everything we did for the next 12 months and that's clearly bullshit um what the ft is doing is this kind of rolling thing oh we learned this so we'll we'll focus on this and the next time we do this and it's this ongoing process and i think of course you need the resources to do that absolutely 
But if you can do it, then that sort of rolling idea of audience feedback. And I don't mean rolling metrics that you just, you know, you get directly from your, your web servers or whatever. Um, <laughs> made me sound really old there. I was going to say weblogs. Proper 1980s term. Feel my time. Sorry about that one. <laughs> <laughs> that one went over my head just to be really transparent right now. I know. I just I've made myself feel old. It's getting increasingly easy, to be honest. You know, but not not just that direct data that you're getting from your, your audience, uh, metrics of your audience data, but that idea that you're actually going out and asking people questions but that were triggered by your audience data or are triggered by answers to previous questions, that kind of that idea of a process and the sort of virtuous cycle that develops around that, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, one to watch for sure. And you know, uh, as well, newsletters a good subscriber perk. We've seen lots of good examples. You know, New York Times comes to mind, but the the one for me, the standout you know, we had them on the podcast to talk about this was Axios, you know, very newsletter focused, um, selling on being acquired for north of $500 million. You know, that's uh, to to further expand their local um, remit and coverage, you know, bearing in mind more markets in the US. So actually newsletters are proving to hold their own as a, as a revenue source as well. So I saw an interesting comment yesterday or the day before from Simon Owens on Twitter, and he was talking about Axios. He's a subscriber to Axios DC. Um, and what he was saying was, I don't see any local advertising. It's only national advertising. I found that a little bit worrying because I think the opportunity there for smaller publishers, not Axios. Axios can have a central sales organization they can sell as to anyone. But if you're someone like the Manchester Mill, as an example, if you are ever to consider local advertising, um, it's that market there. And I think that that's maybe something that, that I'd like to see people have a go at and see, see if that works. I think advertising in newsletters is very much underplayed at the moment. We've come at newsletters a little bit as a almost as a reader service. And actually what Mark Stember talked about in terms of normalization needs revenue. If you're truly going to be part of the portfolio, there's truly got to be revenue against it. And that's one of the things that even, you know, our little niche we're looking at, can we get advertising in the in the newsletter? And we you know, we had Reuters and promoting their own po- a podcast that we had recorded with them. It's part of a bundle. Um, so I think maybe next year um, it would be interesting to see that kind of development of revenue. I'm a little bit dubious about the types of advertising that goes into newsletters. Do you remember the do you remember the kind of early days of the podcast boom when it was all mattresses and Blue Apron? And well, I've got nothing against mattresses or Blue Apron, but uh, if it became that kind of generic, yeah, exactly. Um, then I think that would be a problem. That wouldn't be a problem. It'd just be boring. Conversely, tailored ads in newsletters is a powerful proposition and, Absolutely. you know, a bit more meaningful. And look at that, Peter. We've come full circle and ended where we've started talking about advertising. So It's a story of my life, going full circle and being back where I started. <laughs> Peter, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real blast to speak to you. Uh, and thanks for all of your time and insights. Appreciate no, it. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the other side for a change. I might, might try and do more of this, actually. 
There's a fair bit to digest here, but I think the red thread running through a lot of today's conversation is all about value. Whatever the business model is that you are pursuing, advertising, subscriptions, or whatever else is the next trend, you can bet that it will thrive if it is informed by reader preferences and user needs. Not doing so risks irrelevance at a time of increasing competition, but many are adapting and that leaves plenty to talk about next year. On that note, I want to hear about your newsroom in the new year, your pain points as well as your breakthroughs. If Twitter is still about by then, contact me at JPG Journalism, my team at journalism.co.uk, at Journalism News. Alternatively, email me on jacob at journalism.co.uk. Quick shout out to two awards being run by the Media Voices team next year. You have until midnight tonight, that's Friday the 16th of December, to enter its Publisher Podcast Awards, and also look out for its debut Publisher Newsletter Awards running next year. Two great chances to scoop some awards for all your team. Visit publisherpodcastawards.com and publishernewsletterawards.com respectively for more details. We've got one last episode this year to share with you next week, where I hope to get you motivated for the new year. Award-winning storyteller and former BBC freelancer Druti Shah talks to us about understanding our strengths and weaknesses better and how to succeed in 2023. It's going to be great. But for now, that's all we've got time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.